It became very clear to me that, you know, I was probably leaving for the wrong reasons. And it was really an eye-opener for me in the conversations that I had. And it made me take a step back and really think about, you know, why was I leaving and was I doing it for the right reasons? Hey, everybody. I'm Sam Copes, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. Here, you'll hear me with entrepreneurs, operators, executives, and public servants from all over the country. They'll discuss their commitment to their craft, defining moments, what's made them successful, where things are headed in their space, plus so much more. This podcast is produced by the team at DrivenbySamCoats.com. And for more information and episodes, go to DrivenbySamCoats.com backslash podcast. Before we get to today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor for today's podcast. AB Jets is a great story. It started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. My guest today is Bill Proctor. Bill is a president of Nexair. Nexair has been one of the largest independent packaged gas distributors in the United States and has a rich 73-year history. In early 2023, Nexair was acquired by Lindy, the $33 billion global multinational chemical company. Bill remains president through this acquisition, and Nexair is a great American success story that embodies risk, entrepreneurship, generational ownership, talent development, execution, and so much more. Bill, great to see you. Good to see you, Sam. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks for uh, for offering. Yes, sir. I read that Nexair, this is prior to the being acquired by Lindy, but it said Nexair is proud to serve as the largest privately owned supplier of high quality industrial specialty medical and bulk gases, plus a few other things in the United States. You told me that And I heard from others that after college, you were a ski bum. And and then you were looking to go on a fishing vessel outside of Alaska. Is that right? That's correct. For a company that I read acquired in 1950s, multi-generational. What can you say about the opportunity that a well-run private company can offer? You know, Sam, I think that depends a lot on the culture of the company. You know, I was reflecting on, on that particular comment earlier in the week and that happened on a ski lift in Vail, Colorado. The the owner, Bob McInerney, at the time of <clears throat> the company was under the name of Standard Welder Supply. I was riding up the ski lift with him, and uh, he asked me what I was going to do after the season was over, and I told him that I was moving back to Memphis uh, after I decided not to go to Alaska, and he offered me the opportunity to come and meet with him, really from a networking perspective. And that ski lift alone probably was one of the most important things I've or happenings in my life because that really changed my life at that point or it led to what changed my life. I think 13% maybe, give or take a little bit, only even make it to the third generation. What was in place or how was the ownership, the history of the company, what was there for somebody to evolve like the way that you have and the way others have? 
you know, Bob and, and my predecessor, Bill Vaughn, did a great job of developing talent, recognizing talent uh, with the idea of growing the business over time. And really, they didn't micromanage, and, and they gave employees the responsibility to do their jobs and really were cognizant of the people who wanted adi- additional challenges, and over time presented those. Where were you at in your 20s and 30s from a business standpoint? Were you ambitious, or d- were there things inside of you that you didn't even know you had? I would say that I was definitely ambitious, probably impatient, and, and certainly there were things inside of me that, uh, that I was unaware of. What do you see for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years and forward with the continued acquisition of good companies and how things have evolved, the current workforce environment? Well, I would like to say that I hope that uh, those opportunities continue to exist. I think it is becoming, especially in this industry, uh, becoming more and more difficult to uh, be an independent, privately held organization, especially as a startup, and, and do what NextAir has done over the years as a private company. There are a lot of barriers to entry today that there weren't when this industry was made up of the majority of, you know, somewhere around 900 independent distributors. Today, I think that number is less than than 400. So there's been a lot of consolidation. The barriers to entry into this into this business is it's extremely capital intensive. Here you're talking, you know, more than half consolidation. Is that just a result of the baby boomer generation risk entrepreneurship, the back of World War One and World War Two, and then people, you know, in the issues of generational and family businesses, or people wanting to capitalize on on that investment so the big get bigger and the market dynamics change? I think it's a combination of all of the above, Sam. I, you know, I think the the market has changed in terms of. The suppliers to, and I'm speaking strictly with the industrial gas business, the number of large suppliers uh, and their channels to market, they fully integrated themselves into what I would call the typical distributor market. So there's really not a need in some cases for large distributors to be that channel to market for them because they, they have that channel within their vertical integration themselves. So not only has there been consolidation in the distributor side of of our industry, but also on the supplier side as well. Could you speak to the opportunity and the success and the growth that NextHair's had as a well-run private company versus some of these large publicly traded entities? Well, you know, I think in, in our case, you know, we had a very innate focus on the customer and we have what I would call velocity that differentiates us or differentiated us from our larger competitors and being able to make decisions and move quickly, adapt to the market uh, with talented people. So I, I think, you know, I think it's just the nature of the beast that larger companies aren't able to do that as quickly as a well-run, uh, privately held organization. How did that stay instilled year in, year out, decade after decade? Well, it, had, it was very deliberate on our part. I'll be honest with you. We, we knew that was a differentiator for us in the market, and that is one of the things that we continue to go back to as we expanded. And we had to be deliberate with our culture. We had to be deliberate with velocity. And deliberate about it in, in a fashion that said, as we continue to grow and build out an organization, is it inhibiting either of those really differentiators, whether that's the focus on the customer or the ability to have that velocity in our organization and make decisions quickly, really as close to the customer as possible. Could you give some examples 
of velocity in what you're saying there? Our business is really agreement-driven, and what I would say by that is when we it's called a supplier agreement. Basically, when we put in a make an investment to put in a supply system, it's typically a supply agreement with the customer, and those are fairly capital intensive. So, you know, to be able to do those, the turnaround could be as long as anywhere from eight weeks to to eight months. And you know, the investment portion of it has to meet certain hurdle rates, both in in any in our organization or in a publicly traded organization. So our ability to make that decision, whether that was a, a viable investment for us, and to be able to do that installation, and a lot of times allowed us to win the business because we were able to do that in a fashion that was much more expeditious than our, our competitors, which are much larger. So you're saying if somebody, if you're going to go into a deal, you're going to have a partnership, a big bureaucratic, clunky organization cannot move the ball forward fast. They take too long. It impacts whatever is being delivered or whatever needs to be done from the customer standpoint. And so if you're very focused and you have tight communication and you do great work, you are able to really excel where people would kind of run circles around each other trying to get something done. Is that? Yeah, we call it winning. (laughs) (laughs) We call it winning. Absolutely. What can you share? I read that Mr. R.Q. McInerney, is that pronounced right? That's correct. So that he worked for Standard Welders and that Standard Welders did well throughout the war, World War II, but then it was going to go bankrupt. And he, what I read is that he was playing golf and having some drinks with uh, maybe some bankers and lawyers or doctors, and they, they told him he should buy it. Is that really how it started? Actually, he worked for Lindy and... He was a representative of Lindy and moved around the country, worked in Detroit, California, and took a job with Lindy in the Memphis market. They had a production facility here. Standard Welders was a distributor of Lindy products. And so they were essentially his distributor, and they had uh, changed ownership several times. And Mr. McInerney, or Mr. Mack, as he was called, really wanted to, he and his wife wanted to remain in the Memphis area and, and raise a family. So it was important that uh, he had a, a, you know, a valid distributor in this market to distribute their products. And so when Standard came up for sale, I think the second or third time, he was trying to find a buyer, and he happened to be speaking with some of his banker friends one day at, a, at lunch at a country club, and they basically said, you know, well, Bob, if you think that's such a great business and why don't you buy it and at that point in time uh, that's exactly what he did he borrowed the money and bought standard welders in the early 50s and probably was the first owner of that distributor that knew really anything about the industrial gas business and that was uh you know shortly after world war ii and uh, there was a lot of industrial gas distributors that had that had come to fruition as a result of the war with all the welding etc that was going on uh to make um you know, products for the war. So did he just buy this territory or did he buy the whole company? He bought the whole company, which was really only a one branch operation at the time based in Memphis. And so for the next 10, 20, 30 years, it was mainly welding, hard goods, supplies, and gas. Is that right? That's correct. We we call we we reference our product mix in terms of gas and rent compared to the hard goods business. Uh, and I, at that time, I would say that the gas and rent was a small portion of their business on the in the overall business. 
I would guess it would be somewhere probably in the 80% supply and, and hard goods, 20% gas and rent. And then today, the whole model has changed, correct? It's, it's almost the inverse of that with a much broader customer base. What have you, your team, your predecessors, the McInerney family, what have you all figured out about identifying opportunity, making pivots, and just evolving as people, as a business? Well, I, I think, you know, we have been primarily a gas-focused company and looked for opportunities in those areas and expanding in what would be ancillary product lines, whether that's dry ice, propane. You know, there are the, the great thing about the gas business is there's always different uses for gases and different opportunities for how gases are being used. And if you think about the customer base, it's it's extremely broad from, I'll give you an example of, um, you know, our customer base goes from uh, an institutional hospital for medical gases to a steel mill, an automotive manufacturer, to specimen preservation, to food freezing. So the customer base is extremely broad and looking within those customer bases and applications and understanding who the competitors are in those areas and, you know, what type of job are they doing for their customers? Does that present an opportunity? Does there, is there room for another customer or not another player in those niches? And are they providing the customer what they need? And can we, can we provide something different? So that's really how we've looked at whether that's a geographic market or a market segment over the years that I've been here in, in terms of are there opportunities and we, can we bring something to the table that either one, our competitors aren't bringing or geographically that the customers don't have a choice. And so you're saying really the business model started to flip 40 years ago? Close to that. And it did not happen overnight. I, I, would, I would say it was a very deliberate and it was, you know, people sell what they're comfortable selling. So we had a sales force at the time that was very comfortable selling hard goods. So we, we developed specialists to help sort of move that pendulum, if you will, more to the gas side. And as our sales force became more trained and more comfortable with gases, that's what they began to sell. Uh, and then we looked expanding into different gas arenas, whether that would be the dry ice, propane, and just uh, you know putting add-ons into what our product offering was. AB Jets is a great story. Started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888 888- 520 Jets. It seems from just what I've observed, companies can be pretty effective and successful on the back of a really talented entrepreneur. And sometimes generational businesses, it seems like they can just become stagnant for different reasons. I know you have a really strong reputation. Your predecessor, Bill Vaughn, has a very strong reputation. And then there's you know, three generations of more family ownership and involvement as well. If I'm completely off, please tell me, but could you maybe describe or explain how you can, for consecutive generations, 
keep something private and family-driven, but also have a really good team and really good day-to-day leadership and management and do that dance in an effective way? That's a very good question. You know, looking at it from my perspective, I would say that it's always much more fun to grow a business than it is to to look internally, to be internally focused and cost-cutting. So, you know, to grow a business, you know, our, our mentality has been you have to have talent to grow. You have to have a bench depth to grow or bench depth to grow. So providing that, first of all, identifying talent, the right talent, providing them with opportunities. And, and part of those opportunities is to, to stretch them, challenge them, stretch them. And, you know, part of that is putting them in to positions and opportunities to develop personally, whether that is personal development, you know, for themselves or whether that is through their career and provide those opportunities and that, you know, success breeds success, which continues to hopefully attract more talent, which gives you bent strength to continue to grow. I think that's been the recipe for our success in developing talent, attracting talent, and, and, you know, consequently growing the business. Being on the receivership of that, given just that turnover rates are incredibly high in general these days compared to historical averages and things like that, what did that look like for you and what kept you personally committed to a company for decades? Initially, it was the opportunities and, you know, the culture. And I, I, you know, Sam, I, we have, next year has always had a strategy, uh, whether that's a, one-year, three-year, five-year strategy. Um, But I think the most important uh, piece of our strategy has been our culture. Uh, And to me, culture executes strategy. I'll take culture over strategy any day of the week. And what does culture mean to you? Culture to me means that, you know, you are working for, uh, you know, a common goal. It's collaborative. Uh, It's being heard. It's having the ability to give input. It is, it's not autocratic. Um, so it is being involved in, you know, developing company strategy and executing that. So when you talk about identifying talent today, regardless of education, background, et cetera, what has been most effective for you personally as a, as a president and CEO? You know, I think inside the organization, I think it is, it is incumbent upon us or our managers really to identify talent within the organization that are looking for challenges. And, and you know, not everyone is looking for a challenge and, and that's fine, but I think it's incumbent upon us as managers to identify and recognize the ones who are looking for challenges and be willing to maybe take your best person who's looking for challenges in your department and be willing to move them into another area for their personal development, for the betterment of the company, the betterment of, <clears throat> betterment of the employee for their development long-term. And, you know, I think when you've got that sort of working relationship across the company, then that, that pays huge dividends for the organization and also the employees. And they recognize that. They see that. Earlier, you were talking about that it was a big moment, I think, in 1994, when the next air expanded into Birmingham, is that right? Yes, 1996-ish, 94, that's probably correct. When you think about the top two or three moments, experiences here with your time here, 
that have been most valuable to the company, to everyone involved, to the operation, ownership, et cetera? What would you say those were? I would say Birmingham was was a significant one in terms of really moving into an, an area that was sort of outside of our realm of operation that was a significant metropolitan area. You know, the other would be the merger of Mid-South Oxygen and Standard Welders in 1996, uh, which created Nexair. Both were family-owned and operated businesses based in Memphis. The merger of those two businesses created Nexair. And then another one would be the joint venture that we did in 2012 with Praxair at the time, which took us into the Atlanta, Georgia area. And then in 2016, when we acquired PDSE in Florida, which uh, basically expanded our operations down to Miami and into um, the Carolina-Georgia borders. So when, when you would do these joint ventures or these acquisitions, you would be the physical footprint in these areas. Is that correct? Absolutely. The brand was operated as Nexair. And then you would distribute the gases, the products, or whatever the entity was that you were partnering with. That's correct. In, in the case of the joint venture that we did in 2012, PDI or Praxair had locations in those markets. We, in turn, basically rebranded those facilities in, in that geography as Nexair and took those into the, under the Nexair umbrella and began marketing the Nexair brand in the Atlanta surrounding areas, uh, North Georgia. The same with PDSE. After we acquired PDSE in the Florida market, we rebranded that lo- the, all those locations. I believe there's 25 of those at the time as Nexair and operated as Nexair in those markets, yes. Earlier, a couple months ago when we were together, you talked about when you started here after you met Bob McInerney on a ski lift in Vail. You started in the plant here at one of the main facilities of Nexair in Memphis, Tennessee, and everybody starts there. I think I may have been the second management. I don't like that term. It was really a trainee program that Bob and Bill had developed uh, really to try to bring in college-educated talent to grow the business, essentially, with the idea of learning the business from the ground up. Um, We still have that program in place today. It's much more definitive than it than it was in 1988, but philosophically, it still operates under the same premise as really, you know, exposing an individual to, you know, all parts of the business, but really starting at the production plant and learn, that's kind of the heart and lungs of our business, really. That's, you know, where the secret sauce begins, I guess, if you will. But learning the business from the ground up, you know, that's starting at the plant, loading trucks, learning how to fill oxygen in different gases. Uh, you know, that could be 10-month process moving from there into our, our well, warehousing operations and then distribution and, you know, really trying to assess throughout that whole process strengths and weaknesses on the employee or the trainee's side and understanding what, you know, what their likes and dislikes are and then you know, at some point after that training program ends is putting them into more of a, a, you know, a formal role based on those strengths and weaknesses and likes and dislikes. So there's a communication process that takes place with the trainee and monitoring through that, uh, through that period of time with input from, from both sides. I heard from your predecessor, he said there was an issue one time 
when you were much younger, and it was within a couple hours of here where we are in Memphis. And for at least a month, two months, or three months, you commuted every single day. Does that story come That's to That's accurate. It was longer than one or two months, though. <laughs> it sounded like hell. It was. It was. We were, yes. Yeah, we had we had a situation where we had a competitor that came into the market and basically tried to, to raid our entire organization in that market, uh, all 30 employees. And uh, it was a it was a difficult time, no question about it. Earlier, you were talking about when you're when you're looking for people, trying to identify talent. You want to see people that are willing to take on a challenge. You've also talked about starting in the plant. I've also heard your predecessor talk about some people can handle that and some people can't, depending on maybe what they think they're entitled to and and what they're not. And you, you know, referencing that time that you just talked about with a competitor trying to raid your location down there. If you were going to start a company from scratch tomorrow and you had to build a company with 100 people, 200 people, 500 people from scratch over time, do you have to dumb down expectations, challenges that you need to put people through to grow an organization? Or can people still experience and go through things the way that you and others did coming up over the last 30 years throughout your career? I wouldn't classify it as dumbing it down, uh, Sam. What I would say is I, I think the criteria may be a little different based on you know what today's workforce, but I think the key to that that would be similar in today's workforce and call it 30 years ago is finding the people with the right attitude, with the right spirit, and, and willing to you know put forth the right effort with the right attitude and, and be a really a team player. And, you know, in this case, really have a, a focus on the customer. You know, our mission statement is to create customers for life. And, you know, I think that's above, above say, right below safety, that is really the ultimate litmus test, I believe. Serving something other than yourself. Mm-hmm. Taking on the challenges, understanding adversity, and just having to, to deal with it and live through it. Is that fair? That's very fair, yeah. Where'd you learn that? You know, I, I think it's a combination of both. I, I mean, I think that I, I learned it through my upbringing, but um, it, it probably became more refined in working within this organization. <clears throat> there was an excitement around, you know, growing the business and, it, you know, whether that was in the plant or, you know, there, there's just an excitement about growth and being wanting to be a part of that. And I think that's that's key to having people that have that a similar attitude to that, uh, whether they're in, uh, you know, the warehouse or in IT or in sales or in distribution, uh, that we're all working toward a common goal. And, and really, that's taking care of the customer and growing the business. So you're saying the growth, the excitement, the opportunity, that's the intoxicating piece that can keep people engaged. And that's how things can happen one, two, three, five, ten years down the road? It's worked for us. I mean, in, in having conversations with employees and, you know, what, and kind of going back to the touchstone of, you know, what what do you like about Nexair? What excites you about Nexair? And, you know, almost in every case, it's, well, you know, it, there's opportunities. Why are there opportunities? Well, you're investing in the business. You're growing the business. 
you know, those two things typically lead to good things for people who are looking for challenges and, and enjoy being in a culture that, you know, that we're providing. How do you screen or what have you learned about trying to decipher or maybe other people you respect that pick talent to understand who's up for that and who can buy into it and who can't regardless of what they studied in college or where they went or whatever the background is? That's a tough one. I, you know, I think you can look at their past history. Uh, obviously, you know, some of that comes out in an interview process. Um, if, you're, if you're explaining the trainee program to an individual and he's asking, you know, can I, he or she, is there any way I can study some manuals and skip this process? And that's, <laughs> that's a red flag immediately. But I think, you know, overall, uh, we've been very successful from word of mouth. Um, and we think that is a, a huge, you know, feather in our cap. And we have current employees who are recommending family members. I know nepotism is not necessarily a, a great thing in certain companies. It's been a really good thing for us. Uh, when you have a family member recommending another family member to come to work where they work, I think that speaks highly of the organization. And um, it, it probably bodes well for the individual that they're that they're recommending because they don't want to recommend someone that may not shine a great light on them. Even when I got here, the lady at the front, she said she came here because of a family member. And uh, she just talked about her experience and her experience prior and her experience here. And it was because somebody shot her a text and said, hey, do you have any interest in this job? And so I guess what you're saying, when you, when you pick the right people, when the right people stay, and when the right people feel part of something, motivated, encouraged, they're making money, they're providing for their family, they're feeling that they're growing themselves, then you're just going to attract more of the same people. And then I guess the other can happen if you don't do it the right way. Yeah, I'll, I think that's an accurate statement, Sam. And I would say that we've also been successful through recommendations from friends of friends who know, you know, someone who works here and, and what a great place, in their opinion, it is to work. And they see one who see someone who may fit in, or is looking for an opportunity, and say, you know, you, you really ought to interview with Nextair or see if they have any openings. So it's it's a word of mouth. It has been a word of mouth that's been very successful for us. Nextair seems very disciplined on a day to day basis from operating the business and taking care of the customer. Nextair also seems very talented and skilled at allocating capital through acquisitions, through joint ventures, through software, through training programs. And that seems unique. Is there anything that you can share about knowing how to maintain a healthy balance sheet as a business where you can take advantage and take risks and seize opportunity, but also be very disciplined and responsible for so many decades to be well run? Well, I think from a balance sheet perspective, most of our investments are going into things we're going to get a return on from an asset perspective. So from an asset perspective, we're going to invest in things that give us a return, and that includes employees, whether that is training or, or development. And the opportunity, I think we have, have had the feeling that if the market is conducive to the need of a new competitor in the market, something that we can bring that our competition does not have. We believe in ourselves enough that we're, we're willing to make those, those risks to go into those markets and test the water. 
And so really, you just, you have a framework. And if it's going to make the business better, it's going to make your people better. And there's a there's an upside shot on it. Yeah, I don't think there's any investment we won't make to develop our people or to grow our customer base. Could you share about gas in general, the overall industry of it, and maybe how it's changed and evolved over the last 70 years and where things are headed and how that's been an influential part of, of your business? I would say that the industry has changed from a really from a consolidation standpoint. We touched on this earlier. And the number of, of major gas producers in, in the market today compared to you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago is significantly less, <clears throat> which limits you know, the, what I would say is really the independent distributor because they, they needed the independent distributor 50 years ago as a channel to market. As that consolidation has happened, then you know, they have, they being the major gas producers, essentially become vertically integrated. Uh, from a gas perspective, I mentioned there's always new applications being created for gases, whether that is, you know, in today's world, the hydrogen market uh, with decarbonization and things going on in that nature. So I don't have a crystal ball, but I know that there's tremendous opportunity with decarbonization at, in, for a major gas producer. And you're seeing a lot of investment go into hydrogen, the carbon credits with um you know, decarbonization with CO2 going, uh, being sequestered, which is potentially going to change the, the CO2 market in general, uh, which the supply is tight today, but maybe become even tighter. So, you know, I think those, those are things that are on the horizon and, and how they pan out from a green initiatives, if you will, that remains to be seen. But I know there's a tremendous amount of investment going into those areas. What does that look like in your own life to have to deal with so many different things on a day-to-day basis, but then also stay informed and aware of where things are headed and being able to get high level and also up close right in front of it? I think, you. I mean, it's important to keep a pulse on at a high level, but also understand how we as a distributor of, of package gases and, and bulk gases can really play in some of those markets. Whereas Where's the opportunity for us? You know, just because there's tremendous amounts of, of uh, investment going into green hydrogen, you know, we have to be thinking down long term. How does that fit into, you know, the, the mode of delivery that we can provide to our customers? And where do we fit into that supply chain and try to stay ahead of that and thinking somewhat out of the box. And then if that includes investment, then we need to be making sure we're making it in the right places. And that includes listening to the customer base, you know, to, to the market, understanding the market. Where do we fit in that market from a supply perspective? And what can we bring to that market that maybe is a little different than um, what's being offered today? When you think about the next 20, 30, 40 years, like all the things that you just laid out there, how fast things are changing, how much information has to be understood and chewed on, but then also decisions that have to be made. Can you speak to the type of skill sets, the type of decision-making, understanding, and the speed of how decisions are made that maybe it's somebody that's going to succeed you, what they're going to have to have to be able not just to keep up, but to also be able to, to lead, lead the industry in the way it has in the past? Well, I think technology is obviously a major component of that. There's the business that, as it exists today within Nexair, 
And, you know, we, we focus a lot on applying technology to our business today in basically every area of it, whether that is how we interact with the customer, how we gather data to make decisions uh, on investment, how we make decisions on, uh, you know, markets that we may go into or just the general business of how it's operating day to day. There's that side of it, but also from a technology standpoint, there's, you know, we're trying to apply that in terms of, of big data, um, whether that's from a marketing perspective, and then just staying in tune with what's going on in the overall industry, where those trends may be headed. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not unsavvy with technology, but I do believe that someone who's going to be in this role needs to be embrace that. They don't necessarily have to be on the cutting edge, but they need to understand how to utilize it and where to apply it and where to invest, uh, and where to invest money to, to make that work for them. And are you also saying that they have to be able to, to develop people, to attract people, to challenge people, to, you have to build everything that's strong foundationally with the culture as well with that, both of them together, the way it's been done in the past, but it's only probably going to progress more and quicker. Yeah, I would agree. I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I would give you an example of, of we've, what we've intentionally done really in the last, I'd say, two years, two and a half years is, you know, our vision of what an, an IT department was five years ago is completely different than what it is today. And in terms of how that is utilized or how technology is being utilized in our business, uh, as opposed to just keeping our mainframe and hardware up and running, uh, we have began a few years ago to embed our IT parts of our IT department in different areas of the company and, and really to take a look and say, how can we apply technology to these parts of our business that we haven't necessarily done in the past? Have a different set of eyes from an efficiency standpoint for us, but also how do we utilize that to increase our velocity? Uh, how do we use that to increase our service level to the customer? And you know, we've got a multitude of examples uh, where we have had success in doing that over the last two or three years. It's really been a phenomenal step change in how we operate our business today versus how we did five years ago. And a lot of that is, is the application of technology in certain parts of our business. And is this like one of the examples that you've kind of referenced if you are singularly focused on the customer and on the business and on adding value and everybody's moving in the same direction and you're doing that in a specific area, you're going to win. You're going to win and you're providing opportunities. Take the IT example. I can't tell you the excitement that was generated really across departments by embedding these ladies and gentlemen into departments and not necessarily in a threatening way, but how do I make life easier on what you're doing? And at the same time, how do we provide a better level of customer service? So that goes back to the personal development of those individuals. It creates opportunity for them to do other things from a personal development standpoint see other parts of the business that maybe they weren't exposed to. And that, that's really a two-way street. And then at the, it, you know, the ultimate goal in all that is to really provide a higher level of service to the customer. And so we're all focused really on the same goal 
but accomplishing multiple goals at the same time, if that makes sense. You said you were a ski instructor, ski bum, and we're going to go work on fishing boats in Alaska. Is there anything other than just the opportunity and the challenge? I mean, what's kept you personally engaged for so long? You know, and I think this is a, a fairly simple answer. It's the people. It, it really is the people that I work with and have worked with, with the, for a number of years. You know, and quite frankly, Sam, I'm competitive. I think we're all competitive. We like to win. And we like to see people succeed. And, and that's our employees succeeding and really our customers succeeding. You know, they look at us as experts. I mean, that's the, the ultimate goal is for our customer to look at us next year and say, you know, you guys are our experts in the gases that we buy from you and everything that, is, that goes with those gases. And we're not going to make a decision unless we speak with Nexair if it concerns production, gases, or any of those products that we sell you. So, you know, that's kind of the nirvana, if you will, is to have that sort of relationship with the customer. And, you know, that, to me, that, that is, that's what drives me, is, is the people and working toward that goal of creating the, that customer for life and being viewed as an expert and being a part of their success. So you love seeing people taking something rough around the edges or taking somebody that might not know what they're good at, what they're not. You love seeing who they can become 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. You love creating opportunity. You love going in, seeing customers, mom or pop or big, but you love seeing them and what they do and what makes them happy. But you love being a partner that delivers to them and working with 700, 800, 900,000 other people here in this bigger than that, you know, part of the organization now. But you love just being an expert in your space and helping people flourish in whatever it is they have going on. You summarized that fairly well, yeah. Was there a point in your life where uh, you kind of realized that? You know, I think it took me a while to get there. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, my focus was not, was much more granular than that as throughout my career. But when I really stepped back, you know, took a step back and thought about what is it that really drives me? Because I've had that question asked to me by other employees. And, you know, when I took a step back and did a, a self-assessment and really started peeling the layers of the onion back, you know, that was that was where I, where I came to really was worked in a fabulous company for 35 years now with, you know, in some cases, co-workers for 30 plus years and you know, what, is, what does that mean to me? Why do I continue to do it? And, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's, you know, it's the development of people. It's uh, being able to provide products to our customers and help them succeed as well. What, what advice would you share? Let's say you're talking with, you have children. I forgot their ages again. I think one of your, one of your daughters. 20, are, 23 and 27. What advice or what would you share? to somebody thinking about where we are, what's changed, the way the world is, the way it operates, the way business moves, to really try to be a part of a solution and to really try to, to live a fulfilling life from a career standpoint, from a personal standpoint. Well, let's put AI to the side for a moment. Uh, who knows where, that, where, that's, where that's going. But even with AI, I think my advice and my advice has been to, you know, if you can find 
a company or an organization that you appreciate the culture and the culture appreciates you and you enjoy the people that you're going to work with and you think you can find passion in that. You know, you're going to spend more time with your coworkers and wherever it is that you choose to work probably than you will with your family. And to me, that is an important part of happiness is, is who you work with and whether they appreciate the value that you bring. How would you read or how would you try to pick apart an ownership or executives on to actually understand if that's moving in a trajectory that's worth getting on board with or not? Having a conversation with an individual should give you, if you ask the right questions about you know, how they value employees and, and what, give examples of those and opportunities. Is it really about, you know, a team environment or the individual employee, or is it about something different, maybe the bottom line, uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the employees or the, the individuals that are creating value? What do you think about work-life balance? The other morning you emailed me back sharp at 6 a.m., Earlier, we were talking about stories. What's true there that you've seen over a long period of time, and what's a distraction, if you're open to sharing that? You know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough question. It's uh, one of those, you know, do as I say, not as I do. <clears throat> but I think I have learned over, and I wish I'd learned this earlier in my career, that work-life balance is, is, is very important. And, you know, you, you have to, work will always be there. You really need to take the time and have that balance. And that balance, if you have a family especially, is taking the time to spend with your, your family and your kids. Make time for their events. Those are the things that you're going to remember in life, and those are the most important things in life. Uh, not that work isn't important, but um, you know, you're not going to remember necessarily a certain deal, but you might really be unhappy if you didn't make all of your sons or daughters events, extracurricular activities. Those are important. So you're saying play the long game. Absolutely. Is there anything that you can think of that others, your predecessor, McInerney family, yourself, other executives, is there anything that you wanted to do at a certain time, but you didn't do it and it paid off? that you didn't do that thing? You know, Sam, at one point, I, I've mentioned my impatience earlier, and uh, that impatience came through in a number of ways where that was, uh, I felt like I had, I was ready for a, a move in my job responsibility or responsibilities with the company. And then looking back uh, after the fact, I realized that I probably didn't know quite as much as I did, as I thought I knew. And at one point in time, I was presented with an opportunity to go to work for another company and, and have made the decision to do that. And the next area organization was very, very kind and very uh, amenable to making the slow transition. And, you know, as I made my rounds with Bill Vaughn to, you know, kind of give notice to the employees, uh, it became very clear to me that... Um, you know, I was probably leaving for the wrong reasons. And I had a tremendous, <laughs> it was really an eye-opener for me in the conversations that I had. And it made me take a step back and really think about 
you know, why was I leaving and why was I doing it for the right reasons? And, and I chose not to leave. And uh, again, that was probably um, one of the best decisions I've made in my entire career that I didn't leave next year and chose to stay here. I'm kind of surprised that you went personal on that. I had no idea. That's incredible. And what you're saying is the things that you care about the most is people that, that's, and opportunity, and you felt it. Yeah, yeah. You, you read between the lines. It, it became very obvious to me that I was leaving, you know, the thing that was most important to me for, you know, kind of chasing, chasing something that may or may not have materialized. I mean, it, the offer was there. It sounded like a good offer, but, you know, I was walking into an unknown, and the known was really what was important to me. What can you say about that? You were talking about doing the right thing, taking care of the customer, the relationship. How has money maybe, it seems like, followed as a result of that versus not focusing on it? Well, I think that if you take care of those things, which are which I deem to be the most important, the rest will follow. I mean, it, if, if you have all 775 employees view this as a really a good place to work and they're happy here and it provides for their family and, and they come to work feeling like they're treated fairly and there's opportunity here, believe me, the, the, the customer sees that. And that, that comes through in how we approach the customer. It comes through in our everyday business. It comes through on the telephone. It comes through in face-to-face meetings. And, you know, the rest will follow. And, uh, you know, I think that, that's just part of the, the success. And then is that the same thing personally to where you're saying that you were drawn to, to go somewhere else, but then you realized what you cared about? To some degree. I, I think there was a leap of faith there, you know, Sam as well. I mean, I, 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 had, uh, I, I trusted Bill and Bob implicitly. And, you know, obviously I had a conversation with them before I, I changed my mind, if you will. But you know, both of those gentlemen are, are were tremendous mentors to me. Trust them implicitly, and you know that that had a major was a major part of that decision as well. It was the trust in the in the ownership and the leadership of this organization? What does it feel like being in your shoes? You reference seven hundred and seventy five folks. When you think about the people that have put their kid through college, or the people that started here broke left with a retirement, the people that taking their family on the vacations. It feels like a major responsibility that I've got to do my part. We have to do our we have to do our part as management because we're not only responsible for ourselves and our families, we're responsible for seven hundred and seventy five other families uh, as well. And so, you know, we have to do our part to to make sure that um, you know they're able to do the same the same and take care of their families. What do you focus on or what do you experience when you go through really tough times to try to hold to those principles and those values? You have to look at it from a, from a company perspective and what's, what's, what's beneficial for the majority of the people, what's beneficial for the company's longevity. And I don't mean that in terms of, you know, the bottom line, it is, you know, preservation of, of jobs and, and, you know, employees, et cetera, and, and making those decisions in, in a, not necessarily in a vacuum, but in a, from an overall perspective. And so what you're saying is time and time again, you've tried to think about the bigger picture or where things will be five, 10 years from now. I think now. you have to. I mean, if, I'm not saying that there aren't, aren't times when cuts, certain cuts are necessary, 
our motto is to try to be as efficient as possible. So we're not, our customers aren't subsidizing our inefficiencies, but you know, there are times when, you know, tough decisions have to be made, but I think you've got to look beyond the short term and look at it long term and say, where are we going to be? You know, is this a blip on the radar? Where are we going to be in three years, five years? And, you know, you, you got to maintain the muscle, so to speak. Earlier, you were talking about your customers. And historically, I've heard you talk about how just through market changes or how things happen, that you can know parts of your customer's business better than what some people know inside the organization. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to where we're at today in the value in the training, in the relationships, and the trust and of a strong brand, and what that can actually mean or what that can look like to really get into your customer's business and provide value and really be the expert the way that you framed it? Well, it, it goes you know, back to the technology piece. You know, it's, it's enabled us to really help them manage their business. And when you can, when you can do things like predictive analysis on ordering for them based on past history, if you can show them where the assets that they're renting from you are located within their facility and how long they've been there and whether they're being used in an, an efficient manner or not or how many deliveries that they're getting and how many we should be, you know, we project they should be from an efficiency standpoint. And you can bring those things to the table to the customer and say, these are suggestions. This is what we can help you with. These, from a transaction perspective, and it really help you manage your business, that puts things in a whole different perspective. All of a sudden, you've changed from being in what maybe some people view as a commodity to really being an expert in helping them manage their business with information and data that they don't even know. That's a real differentiator. And that, that's what I'm talking about in terms of being an expert. I mean, we've always been a solution-selling customer, and that's really been primarily on the, <clears throat> on the process side, whether that's with, the gas, with gases or with welding. We've done that for, for years, uh, really since the inception of the company. But more recently, utilizing technology on the transaction side and using that data really to help customers manage their business. So it's almost a two-pronged approach. We want to provide a solution on the process side to help you, whether that's if you're manufacturing widgets, get the widget out the door at the least possible cost to you in in terms of efficiency and bringing efficiencies to you, uh, Mr. Customer, and helping you manufacture that product. But the second prong of that is the data that we have and the technology that we're utilizing putting that in a format to help them manage their business, whether that's from a transactional perspective or managing assets with inside their own, own business. And that's the muscle that you're that talking about. That is absolutely the muscle. When you put those two together, and, and we just, we've had a couple of recent successes that it's a paradigm shift. It is a paradigm, especially the, the technology piece that I was referring to. And that's relatively recent within the last couple of years that we've been working on this. And the success that we've had with a couple of very large customers with predictive ordering, utilizing the data that we receive in terms of, you know, where our assets are, how long they've been there, et cetera, how many deliveries they're getting, and really breaking that down and helping them manage their business 
that is very, very strong. Has it been this way since you got here? That mindset, the muscle? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. How, where did that start? Quite frankly, I think that probably started with Mr. McInerney. When I say Mr. McInerney, Mr. Mac, the original, the, the founder, I mean, he he came from an organization that was a solution-based organization. Uh, he, he carried that over into Standard Welders. Uh, you know, Bob, second generation, uh, was always a solution-minded person with the sales force in terms of providing solutions to our customers. Uh, and so that's just continued on, and it's it's expanded into, as I mentioned, the second prong, which is really a technology-driven, data-driven play as well. And it's only going to become more and more valuable. It's, it is. There's no question about it. What can you say about making tough decisions that you have to go through a lot of change sometimes to get things to where it needs to be, to have the skill sets in the room that can deliver some of these things that you're talking about. But this also seems like a place of history, of loyalty, of principle, of values, tradition. Seems like a really beautiful blend of both. It is a fantastic blend of both, but I'm a firm believer, Sam, that you have to have the right people in the right seats on the bus. Doesn't mean that if they're on the in the wrong seat that they are on the bus. It's just a matter of finding the right seat for them if they have the right attitude and the right spirit about them. So it's I'm a firm believer you've got to have the right people in the right seats. Have you ever been a procrastinator of those decisions, or have you always pretty much attacked them to get to where things needed to go? You know, I probably have attacked some too in more too much of an expeditious manner. I do believe that it, they're always good to at least sleep on after you've reached that decision to make sure that, you know, kind of a gut check the next day to, to go back through and make sure that's the right decision. But I, I don't, from a decision-making standpoint, I don't really believe uh, that tough decisions are best to be procrastinated on. I don't, I'm not saying that it's not good to wait and see how things materialize in certain situations, but uh, I'm not a firm believer in procrastinating on making those difficult decisions. I didn't think so. Since you said patience earlier is not one of your strong suits. I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> it's evolving. So, Lindy, which acquired Next Air at the, at the end of this past year, 2022, correct? Yes. And it's a $33 billion organization out of Dublin. That's correct, yeah. You've talked about your relationship with them, and you said it's been great. You've talked about leadership and their support and wanting to let you all keep running a great business. Is that fair? That's very fair. Based off your experience, based off of other things you've done, other things you've seen, other things in the market, what does it look like when something like this is done well? And what does it look like when it just gets really screwed up? Well, I, I would say there are examples of both. And I'm not going to mention, you know, particular names. And look, we've we've been a choir of businesses, and you know, not all of them are were necessarily fixer uppers. I think you got to recognize, you know, the things, the the ones that operate well, and what are the good parts of those businesses, and as best you can adapt your policies and procedures and, and culture to the things that they do well, and recognize opportunities in areas that maybe they don't do so well. Uh, the ones that I have seen that have absolutely not worked are organizations who feel that their way is the best way, damn the torpedoes, and really um, enforce 
unrealistic things uh, on an organization that really just decimates morale. And those typically don't go very well. And, and there's, there's, I can cite an example today that um, we're witnessing in the market, and we've fortunately been the beneficiary of some of that. You know, the things that have gone well and are going well here is I think Lindy has a, a regional mentality in terms of operating businesses in a regional fashion, close to the customer, allowing regional decisions to be made with an overall corporate structure, if you will. And they have been um, very hands-off in terms of us operating the business as we've had in the past. Now, with that, that, you know, the only exception to that would be the accounting side. And uh, that's for obvious reasons. We're publicly, I mean, we're private, we were a private company bought by a public company, which there obviously were accounting practices and policies and procedures that, that needed to change. But outside of that, you know, we have had the opportunity to continue our culture, continue our, you know, the way that we've operated the business in the past continues today. What's been most effective for you? from a communication standpoint, others to really try to retain people, encourage people, tell the truth, not spend something, but go through this season the best way possible? I, I think that you can never communicate enough. If you think that you need to communicate, then you're probably behind the eight ball. You can't communicate enough, and I, would, I, I firmly believe in transparency. Transparent communication, I mean, I think that's part of a culture, that you <clears throat> be transparent in terms of, of uh, what you're communicating and, and what the expectations are. The worst is the unknown. If there is a void in communication, people typically fill that void with their own thoughts, and those thoughts normally are not positive thoughts. And that's how rumors get started, and so that, that void in communication can really be detrimental to an organization. Are you willing to share anything that you've been deliberate about trying to do to create the opposite of that that's been very helpful? Let's say to another CEO, listen to this, or somebody that might be in that role. What have you done that's worked? You know, I think with any, any sort of change at all, you know, human nature is to, I won't say resist change, but human nature is not really acceptance of change. And so if there's change within the organization, is really getting in front of that and communicating that and listening and circling back around and communicating that again and giving updates. Whether there's an update to be given or not, you know, have, have it on the calendar, schedule it. We do company updates through a video through our learning management system. And, you know, it, it goes out in a, through our learning management system to every employee. And, you know, we, we started doing that because we, we felt like we had gotten to the size that it was just very difficult to go around in person and visit, or not visit, but have meetings. You know, we'd spend an entire month doing that. But communicating the health of the business, initiatives, you know, anything that, any change that may be coming. And then if it's a major change, then that's almost a separate communication piece and continuing to follow up with those. And as I said, if there's really nothing to report, I still say you have that, repeat the last communication piece and you're going to give an update on when there is change. But I just, 
people like to be communicated with because that void in communication create, can create some serious issues. What have you learned or what can you share about things you're very concerned about or issues that you've got to face? You seem like even today when you walked in, you're super nice. You came down. We were 30 minutes early. You said hello. Most people don't do that. People are still nice, but you're walking around here. You're at your office, but you're talking. You said, you know, I'm just dealing with a couple of things today, but overall, you know, good day, whatever. But given the, the amount of people you have on the road, the amount of people you have around the Southeast, all the things over the last few decades, what have you learned about those conversations you're nervous about having or those things that are just kind of in your gut? Is it any easier? Have you got any better at facing things day in, day out, or is it still just, have you just learned how to manage it? I would say facing things day in and day out have gotten easier, and I think it's, you know, you can't sweat the small stuff. I mean, it's, I'm not trying to minimize any anything necessarily, but I do think that, you know, you have to recognize what is the small stuff. You can't really sweat that. Uh, some things you can't have an impact over on. You can't really sweat those either. You just have to deal with those in the best fashion that you can. And, and communicate those, you know, to your people. Now, you know, there are parts of, of any job, I think, when it affects their job, that aren't pleasant conversations to have, and those never get any easier. Those are never fun, uh, regardless of, of the situation. So what's it like, or how would you describe it, to say that you've spent pretty much all of your career up to this point with one company and have had the ride you've had up to today for these 35 years, for the people that can find the right place, read the leadership and ownership the right way, what's the joy in that that others may be missing? Yeah, I recognize that it is an anomaly, Sam. I mean, I think, you know, uh, hopefully there are places that, that you can find that today. What I would say is I feel very fortunate and blessed to have been with this particular company for 35 years and the people that I've worked with the people that I hired, I mean, you know, it, over 35 years, you go through or you develop, it becomes like a family. I mean, for, for lack of a better word, I mean, you go through <clears throat> births, marriages, deaths, uh, you know, all those things that you experience in a family. And it's just been a, a phenomenal place to work and presented me and my family with great opportunities. And I can't the only thing I can say is I've been extremely fortunate and blessed, and uh, I'm just so glad that it worked out this way. And would you agree that those chances for people, it's just gonna, they're just going to keep getting smaller and smaller over time? You know, I hate to be pessimistic about that, Sam, but I, I'm not going to say that there aren't those same opportunities because I, I don't know that. But I would say given what I know about privately held companies in today's world, I would say that is giving— uh, that is becoming a smaller and smaller, definitely less of an opportunity to do that today than, than there was uh, when I came into this, in, into this company 35 years ago. But it has truly been a team effort, and we have got a phenomenal team here and, and extremely supportive. And so I, I can't take recognition for that. It has truly been a team effort over those 35 years. How do you shift now? to maximize opportunity for other people now that you're a part of a publicly traded corporation? Well, you know, I, we've had that conversation within the, the new organization, and, you know, we have 
a chessboard, a war room, if you will, where, uh, you know, as we continue to grow and whether that's bringing in new product lines, et cetera, I mean, there's, we've, we have a, a chessboard with, I won't call it a succession plan, but essentially that's what it is with, uh, whether that's a pipeline of people and development of those people and opportunities of where they may fit in their next role, you know, that's still in play today. And so I think, you know, for the, certainly for the near term, uh, we're going to continue to do uh, operate as we have in, in terms of developing people, creating opportunities, promoting from within. I don't know that that changes. It's pretty incredible. You can see how the way people are wired and it's got to be in their heart because when the game changes a little bit, even in a positive way, but the drivers that somebody has internally to keep coming in day after day, executing and keep trying to create opportunity, move people along and do that in a way, you know, when a lot of the, maybe the drivers that were 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's changed. Yeah. But it's intrinsic and you can see that. It's pretty powerful. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.